Welcome to the Lion's Mane Podcast Season 4. Today I'm talking to Ashley Pardo, who is not a dietitian, so I ask her, what's your thing? If you're not a dietitian, but you're not a therapist, what is it you do? We talked about everything from food, addiction, substances, poverty, trauma. Like We talked about cooking. We talked about the most interesting things she's ever cooked. We talked about the most disappointing things she's ever cooked. If you're an athlete, if you're somebody who has an interesting relationship with food and you're not really sure what is up, you need to listen to this episode. So I really enjoyed this conversation. We could have talked for eight hours and I hope you enjoy it as well. So without further ado, let's get it popping. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Lions Me Podcast. And today I have Ashley, the dietitian slash not dietitian slash are you a nutritionist coach? Are you not? Are you an intuitive eating person? Are you not? What is the deal, Ashley? Thank you so much for coming and please explain to us what you do. I'm so happy to be here and excited to talk to you today. So I am a nutritional therapist and a business Which is coach. not a dietitian, everybody. Yes. Just so you got yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was full um, sarcasm. She has posted yes. many times about not being a dietitian. So. Yes, yes, exactly. And that was very intentional for me to not be a dietitian. I really, you know, through the years just wanted to provide people with a more holistic view of food. So I'm a nutritional therapist, nutrition coach. I'm a business coach too. Um, I was a private chef for seven years. So that's a big part of my story too. I I talk a lot about cooking, Um, but I've been an entrepreneur now for 10 years. And I knew that when I started my entrepreneurial journey, which started from my own struggles with food, I had eating disorders growing up, big issues with my body. And I discovered that I could still have a really good relationship with food and relationship with my body. If I ate foods that I loved and that I cooked, and if I cooked them and if you cook Mm -hmm. them really well and simply things can be really delicious. And were you already into cooking at that time or not really? I was, but not to the point that I am now. Um, I was, I hadn't gone to cooking school yet, but I was like obsessed with baking. I was obsessed with learning everything that there was to learn about cooking and feeding yourself and nurturing yourself and all these things. And that's kind of what, kind of the opposite of what we're taught when it comes to like being healthy. It's like, oh, only eat these things and you can't enjoy yourself and you have to be really strict and stringent. And I'm like, we know that that doesn't work. That's the diet industry. And it's such a successful business because people keep coming back. Like Mm -hmm. diets don't work. You really have to take a multifaceted approach to these things, um, especially with food. But back then I had corporate jobs and I knew that I just wanted to help people and teach them how to cook well and eat well and have a good relationship with food. I had no idea what that would look like or how I would do that. So I went to cooking school. I got a master's in food and nutrition. And then I worked on farms in Europe for three months um, after cooking school and after I got my master's because I was trained in like really fancy French culinary technique. And that doesn't translate to the home cook. Like meals take hours, you have a bunch of obscure ingredients. And then when I went to, and I still, even after cooking school, I still didn't feel like I could just cook. Mm -hmm. Like, like at the end of the day, what everybody has to do 
you're hungry. It's dinner time. You have to eat. You're not going to spend an hour cooking and making food. Um, so I went and traveled to Italy and I lived on farms. I lived on, um, a farm that had grapes, uh, for wine and they had a bunch of other vegetables and fruits, all really seasonal. And then I ended up working on a cheese farm also, but that, and it was several months that I was there and through that process and like living, I lived with them, with these people, Mm -hmm. I did it through a company called Woof. Uh, I learned that you could cook food that was super amazing and seasonal and budget friendly and approachable in a really short amount of time. Like these people would cook their meals in 15 minutes. Wow. And this was the opposite of what I had been taught and what I had learned. So I was like, people really need to learn how to do this. So I had that experience. I moved back home to Miami. I'm from Miami, Florida. And Miami is a part of Florida. Yes. <laughs> Everybody There's says Miami, Miami Ohio. <laughs> I know. Yeah, exactly. There's a Miami, Ohio, but Miami is its own little, just little sect of Florida. Little, little sect of Florida <laughs> with a bunch of different people. So I yeah, grew up with a lot of culture and, and diversity. I'm Cuban and Nicaraguan. Um, but when I moved home, I still had no idea what I was going to do. And I sort of I'm connected in the community. I have a bunch of friends and a big network. And I told people that I just wanted to cook for people. And then I somehow got clients and it spread. So I had that business just cooking for people in their homes, really more of a day-to-day cooking rather Mm -hmm. than like a catering business or like for events or anything like that. Normal families that wanted to eat healthy and then while I was doing that, I taught seminars on the side about, you know, relationship with food and mindset around food, really just like developing my ideas and my voice. I I did that stuff for free at the beginning. And at the same time, I was, I also studied to become a nutritional therapist. I took courses in mindful eating. So I also taught cooking classes. So at the beginning, I just like did everything that I could to find my voice, find what I wanted to do. So I started that in 2012 and in 2019, I stopped cooking for clients. I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I've been online full-time in my business since then. So now I do one-on-one coaching um, for introverted women with feelings. That's my market. Mm -hmm. Um, And I teach about cooking too. And then I also do um, business coaching, but I don't put that at the forefront of, of my business, but that's how things sort of got started. And now I, I just really feel like I am doing what I'm meant to do and, you know, just have a very unique approach with, with food and, and teaching about nutrition that really empowers people, that gives people like tools and principles to live it out on their own, um, to have a very autonomous relationship with food, which I think is the most sustainable. You've been on a long journey with food. Wow. I know. Yeah. That is incredible. Yes. Yes. Can you, can you kind of break down for us what inspired you to slowly peel back all those layers to food? Like you came in saying, you know, I I struggle with this. This is a part of my life, not because I necessarily want it to be, or maybe I really do want it to be, but it is without a doubt, a huge part of my life. And then you continue to make it a part of your life. Like what was it that really continue to push you to say, I'm going to peel back this layer and this layer and this layer. And now I'm here. There's probably more layers to go, but what has been, what's inspired you to do that? Yeah. 
Well, I really changed and grew and honestly transformed as a person. Mm -hmm. Like I was somebody who used to be very shy, meek, um, because I had these eating disorders or perhaps I was that way. And then the eating disorders developed Mm -hmm. as a result of that. And I was honestly in such a dark place with food for most of my life and my body. I was overweight for my body type. um, And I felt super uncomfortable in my body. I didn't feel confident. I had no self-esteem. And then through, and I didn't want to look at it. Like back then food was my comfort. And I also hated it at the same time. Like I hated that it was my struggle and I hated that I struggled with it so much. And I hated that other people didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was such, it was like the foundation of um, my life, you know, because I used it to cope probably starting at six or eight years old. And because I, yeah, I grew up with all of these, um, you know, I was restricted in the house I was growing up, growing up in and um, was sort of pushed. I had like a certain ideal body type that was pushed on me, which my body wasn't meant for. Mm. Um, I have more of an athletic build, a curvy build. Um, I'm not meant to like be stick thin, Um, (sighs) even though like growing up in a city like Miami, you know, looks are everything and images everything. So I got really sick of my struggle. Like I just really didn't want to feel that way anymore. And I'm like, how can I, I loved food. And I thought that because I loved food, I just ate so much. And that's what brought me to feeling this way. But that's never the reason why it's like food isn't the cause or the enemy. It's just the vehicle in which we act out things. And it could be anything, right? It's like, cigarettes or gambling or any addictions. Um, Food was my thing. So I decided to just really dive in deep. And really, I was really, really adamant about loving food and also feeling good in my body and feeling peaceful. Cause like we have to eat every day, whether we like it or not. So I'm like, I can't feel like this relationship with this thing that's in my life is full of strife and stress and like anger, you know, like for struggling with it for so much. So for so long. So I just through the years realized, like, if I eat certain things, I feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. If I don't eat certain things, I feel a certain way. If I have a certain mindset about myself and care for myself and love myself, then I'm going to eat a certain way as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it involves, you know, it involved for me the way I eat, what I eat, and also just like how I treated myself in these processes. But I ended up through all of these things that I did, just really having a peaceful and awesome relationship with food where I like really, really enjoy it, but I also respect it now. And I don't have any sort of issues with it anymore. Um, it's been, I don't know, maybe 10 years now that I've been recovered and things are things, you know, it's just not something I struggle with. And because I, and I changed in the process into a different, more confident person. Um, And I really wanted that for other women and for other people, because so many people struggle with food. 
and cooking and all these things. So I'm like, I'm kind of like the one-stop shop <laughs> that can help people get through this. Which is awesome because it's like somebody who survived all of that is somebody who can truly speak to that experience. Exactly. And yeah. I think to, you know, and I think to a certain extent, and you can probably relate to this too, like we teach what we need to learn. Yeah, totally. You know, so like, I think by my own, um, being inspired to change myself and like really being sick of my own, the things that I did to myself, um, from a, you know, in a loving way, learning about it and then, um, living it and then being inspired to teach others to, to do the same thing. But eating is complicated. It's not just like about food lists and, you know, exercising. It's a lot deeper. And many of us grow up with trauma and, um, stress and tension and food is a really, really easy way to soothe yourself. Yeah. Um, but it's also, and really you can learn that when you're very young too. You, you learn, learn that, that when you're so very young. young. Yeah. yeah. From, for me, from, I can't even remember a time that I didn't struggle or that I didn't, I wasn't obsessed with like, like we were talking before we started recording, whenever I would go to a friend's house, I would binge and like literally be sick because I'm like all the scarcity of like, when is this going to come back? I don't know. I need to eat it all right now. It needs to be done. It doesn't matter Act how only. I, yes. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. The signal that I'm done is that the food is gone. Exactly. And only then I'll still ask if you have any left. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's, it's hard, you know, but I always tell people that it can actually be a really beautiful portal for a better life and a way to, um, really take that relationship and, and create better relationships with everything else in your life. It's like the vehicle to uncover all of these things. I'm in 100% agreement and have 8,000 questions. So let's like (laughs) eventually sorting now. Uh Um, Wow. You have an incredible story. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you've shared a lot on Instagram, obviously. And so I already had a lot of questions, but now I have a lot of questions, (laughs) but you, you spoke about how context and upbringing Mm-hmm. You know, our nurture makes a lot of who we are as adults. It comes down to attachment style. It comes down to the kind of family yes. you had. Poverty has a huge influence. Social factors, cultural factors as well have a huge influence. Mm-hmm. How you're treated within your community. I mean, minority families, for example, that's uh, growing up in a minority family or as a woman or as a queer person. I mean, <laughs> or all three, <laughs> you know? It's like, endless. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's um, context does a lot to develop that, but is there any case to say that there's the nature versus nurture argument still? Like, is there a, ge- a genetic component to this or is it really just the influence of family, social orders, norms, things like that? I think it's both. I think that um, it's, what's that saying? It's like uh, nature loads the gun and nurture fires it. I don't know. I might have um, that totally similarly, wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's a good metaphor though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Um, it's, it's something like that. I might've gotten totally wrong, but I think both have a certain effect. I think we are, when we're born, we are primed to, you know, like if our, if there's addiction in our family, if there's substance disorders, um, you know, things like that, that can definitely um, prime you for being more susceptible to these things. But I do think that a lot of it has to do with 
especially with food, I think the attachment style, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think that that is pretty much the number one thing that um, creates sort of a distorted relationship with food. You know, children or babies will attach, but it's about the quality of the attachment. Mm -hmm. So your earliest relationship with your primary caregiver is going to be the thing that colors your relationship with food. So, Mm -hmm. and this can go in two directions, um, sort of what's modeled in your family and in your family system um, in terms of how your caregivers eat and how they think you should eat or the type of body that they think you should have. So they sort of project all of their um, stuff onto you. But it's also about the, like I said, the quality of the attachment. If you don't, if you have an insecure attachment to your caregiver, you know, as babies and as humans, like we just want soothing and we want to release tension, you know, Um, everybody feels that. But I think people who had that sort of insecure attachment, sort of a withdrawn caregiver or, you know, an abusive home or trauma or something like that, you have a heightened need for soothing. Mm-hmm. And you have, um, you sort of see the world in a different way in terms of like yourself, your relationships and your relationship with foods. So from a young age, you, um, you know, tension is created mm-hmm. because we are looking for that love and that soothing and it's not being given to us. So we look for it in other ways and it can, I don't want to say permanently, but it, cause it can be worked through. But unless it's worked through, you will feel that sort of those fears of that humans have around like abandonment um, and inadequacy, which are like the two um, human human um, fears, I would say. Mm-hmm. But um, it changes your stress, your, re- your reaction to stress, also like how the nerve connections in the brain develop. So it sets up tracks. Um, and then we can develop things like impulsivity, compulsivity, addictions, um, internal things like anxiety, PTSD, depression, external things like anger, acting out, food stuff. Um, so it changes how the brain develops and it also, um, changes our need for, you know, reward like dopamine and opioids and and Mm -hmm. getting pleasure from food and things like that and food is something that is widely available and something that's delicious something that is culturally acceptable um birthday parties have sugar and especially in cultures like you there are certain foods that are tied to certain cultures and things like that so it i think that we are predisposed to a certain extent, but nurture, I would say is probably 80% of, because if you're born with these things and then you have a a really healthy relationship modeled by your caregiver, then, and you feel very secure, then um, I don't think that these things would develop as frequently, but uh, it it will change your life, you know, and, and the way you cope from a very, very, very young age. And it can stay with you until you deal with it forever, which is what you do too. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's part, that's like your work too. Definitely. I feel like you were looking, you were looking for a better word than permanent. I kept thinking of, um, it does make a permanent impact though, regardless, like it doesn't change yes. you permanently or it doesn't, um, mean you're always permanently going to be that way, but it does make a permanent impact that you'll always have 
some level of consequence from or some level of repercussion, whether good or bad. Exactly. Not until you've dealt with it. Go to therapy, guys. (laughs) Yes, yes. Big fan of therapy, (laughs) big fan of, you know, coaching. But, uh, you know, I I think it creates like a heightened tension, that need Mm -hmm. for self-soothing when you feel that sort of arousal that happens. Um, and honestly, and it, to, to take it to a, even a neuroscience standpoint, we know that carbohydrates, for example, calms down the yes. sympathetic nervous system. So when yes. we're upset and panicked and we start the, and we think, okay, maybe we had some caregiver attachment issues, or maybe we had poverty, which was a, a huge problem and never knew yes. we were going to get our next meal or yes. homelessness and needed a sense of control or upset parents in the home, not getting enough attention, whatever that could have been. And then from the age of, you know, very young childhood, we start learning, when I'm upset, I need this in order to help me calm down. And that's literally exactly. a neurological component that that gets wired into the brain. Exactly. And yeah. That's difficult to get back out when it's been it, in there exactly. for 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years. And it's delicious and yeah. it's available everywhere. Um, you know, so it is a, it's a very people's food issues developed for very good reasons you know, very valid reasons and not just out of nowhere, not just out of nowhere, you know, it's a way to, it's just the vehicle in which we act out these things that we feel. And, um, the food itself can, um, play into this too, in terms of like eating excess carbohydrates, like that Mm -hmm. is going to make you want to eat more too. So I think that there's also like psychological reasons, but there's also physiological reasons why we eat. Um, but you know, like you said, it has a permanent impact and it might always be with you. These feelings of, like I said, inadequacy, abandonment or anxiety. Like I deal with anxiety every day. Um, but welcome to the club. You're not the only one. (laughs) Yes, I know. And I'm, I'm like, the more I talk about it, the more I see that other people deal with it too, but then you learn different ways of coping that are healthier for you. So it's like your, the way that you are might always, it might always be the same, but the way that you cope and the way that you treat yourself is different. Mm, I love that you bring it straight to the point um, with coping, because we talk a lot about in psychology, especially working with athletes, that everybody has maladaptive coping mechanisms and we never really stop step back and take a look from a macro perspective of that, if that actually helps us or doesn't help us, we've just developed it because we needed it at some time. And at some point that did help us, but we've now most likely moved further than that. And that either harms us or doesn't help us anymore, or takes too much time, too many resources, whatever it may be, and always needing to update your coping mechanisms. So the first thing we do is we don't necessarily add something. We want to just take a look and non-judgmentally look and say, what are the maladaptive patterns that I learned because they helped me at some point to stay alive, but I don't need them anymore, or I need to replace them with something that doesn't harm me equally. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, exactly. So could you dive into that with how that looks in food? Is food the only coping mechanisms or do we need coping mechanisms, for example, for dealing with food? Oh, that's a, that's a really, really, really good question. I, I think that it's all about the intention um, with these things. Cause I like, I, we are humans with emotions and damn it. <laughs> yes. Right. Like we really not. tried here. We gave yeah. our best this exactly. year to not be that, but exactly. emerging from quarantine with tear ducts and feelings anyway. Damn it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they never go away. So I, I actually really don't like the, the narrative out there that like food is just fuel. 
Mm-hmm. For some people, it, and, and this is probably a lot of athletes too. This is probably your- Absolutely. You know, I literally uh, said this to you in the introduction, knowing you'd probably yes. talk about it later. <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. Um, and for many people- It's literally it a gas station most motivational sign to make us feel like we can just cram it down and not think about it because it causes too many feelings. It, exactly, exactly. So it is, for many people, people just eat and like, it's fine, you know? Yeah. But for many people- that isn't the case. And when you struggle with food, when you grew up in an environment, again, that in some way impacted your relationship with food, it is going to stay with you forever. So I think it's very short-sighted for a lot of people. Again, some people it's true. Food is just fuel, but for other people, it's very short-sighted to say that because we are complex, multi-layered humans with emotions. So food can be and is emotional and a coping mechanism. So I will still to this day, not all the time, emotionally eat or use food to cope, but I will do it in a way that serves me and doesn't harm me, you know? Mm -hmm. So like I will eat when I'm hungry, you Mm -hmm. know, I will not make myself feel like junk with food. Um, If I'm full, I won't eat you know, because okay. those things don't feel good to me. Um, at the same time, you know, when food isn't available <laughs> to be used in that way because I'm full or because like I've had enough food or I just don't want that, then we need other coping mechanisms too. Mm-hmm. Um, food can't be the only emotional thing that you use to uh, calm yourself, you know? And, and in that case, like you do need other healthier coping mechanisms. And it also has to do with like, are you using it to numb? Are you using it to pleasure to like gain pleasure? I think if you do it with awareness, then it can be a lot different too. Like I am going to eat this ice cream right now because I'm sad, but I'm doing it with full awareness and I'm, and I'm going to be there for it. I'm not using Mm -hmm. it to numb out, you know, and that in and of itself will require more presence and more mindfulness so you can actually be there for the experience um rather than going into a deep dark hole of like a binge and completely disassociating from these things so Mm. i think that it's kind of a multi-layered um concept here (laughs) and you know but but i do think that it's beneficial to have those other tools in your toolbox for coping in in other ways Mm, i like that spin on it um you and I talked before we started recording about why I wanted to bring you on here specifically to talk about this very scarcity mentality concept. We yes. talked about restriction and, mm-hmm. and poverty and things like that. And I personally didn't experience poverty as a child, thank God, but I experienced extreme restrictiveness in that my mother had a very severe eating disorder and still does and other situations within our family. And that I experienced houselessness and poverty as a young adult. And so never really knowing where's the next meal going to come from, what is it going to be? Similar to, as you were saying, when we go to friend's house, I would eat the whole pantry and fridge um, totally empty. See you later. Now I can leave and go home, even if it made me sick Uh, in college, you know, eat as much as you can, drink as much as you can, just because it's there and you never know when it'll run out, puke it out and then eat it again, just because it's there basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that it's really hard, obviously being in therapy to literally look at the world as I'm an adult. I can have more of that if I want to. If it we run out, I can go to the store and I don't have to shove all of it in my face right now and basically um, 
like compulsively eat it basically just because I get the feeling like, what if it's not there when I want it? Because it will most likely be there when I want it. I can afford it. I have access to it. It's not super expensive. So I can always go and get more instead of having to eat the entire batch of cookies. I could just make more later because I'm an adult and I usually don't want them later. It's just that I want to eat them all then. Yes, (laughs) totally. So how are we dealing with this, Ashley? I mean, thank God I have a really great therapist and a great pastor who helped me do all of this shit, but how, because athletes have the same thing. A lot of, especially female athletes or females, um, like people who are um, born female, for example, they are assigned female at birth. Sorry, I'm working on my terms at the moment. Mm -hmm. Like have this in, as part of our culture, like whether it's the body type, whether it's the foods you can and can't eat, especially female athletes, you need to eat this much. And I know a lot of athletes who don't want to eat that much because it tastes disgusting to be that full or yes. they're sick of eating the same food all the time, but still have this feeling like I have to eat this because there won't be enough. And if I don't eat it right the second and then exactly. the disgusting feelings that happen after that, can you break that yes. down for us? Yes. So I think that there's two two components here. There's the mental aspect of scarcity, and there's also the physical aspect of scarcity and and restriction. If you, you know, there's many reasons why we might feel restricted. Um, Many people, and I'm not sure if you see this a lot with your athletes, but many people have sort of that compulsive relationship with food because they literally aren't fed. Yeah. You know, they're not eating enough carbs, especially. Um, they're not eating. They're partially for- starving and don't even know it. <laughs> they're partially starving and don't even know it. And like, like there's this saying, I forgot who says it, but it's don't fight the ocean. Like, you know, your body is going to win. Like your the physiological responses that your body gives you are natural, you know, yeah. and the psychological ones too. So like, if you aren't fully fed and I suggest like, working with a nutritionist or, um, you know, I work with athletes too. And, um, you know, many of them have a fear of, um, you know, gaining weight or, Mm -hmm. um, eating too much or any of these things or eating like processed food and, and stuff like that. So the first thing is like, make sure that you are fed to, the best of your capacity, making sure that you're getting sufficient carbohydrate, good sources of carbohydrate, um, enough protein, enough fat. So make sure that you have, um, you know, that your body is functioning well and you're eating in accordance to your goals and, and the ways that you want to perform. And, you know, with athletes, it's typically performance, obviously over aesthetics or yeah. um, even health sometimes. In most sports. <laughs> Yes. Yes, exactly. It's always basic when the aesthetics have to win out and you're like, yes, yes, I know. It's complicated. It's It's horrible. Exactly. But you know, aesthetic goals and, and performance goals are completely different and you have to eat in a completely different way. So like, if you want to perform well, you probably are going to have to sacrifice some aesthetic and maybe some health. And if you want to have pleasure goals in between having health and, uh, what you say? Health and aesthetics and performance goals. And you yes. want to have pleasure goals? Oh, yes. girl. Yeah, that's too much. Yeah, don't ask for too much, you know? <laughs> yeah. You so, are getting two of the four, so choose yes, wisely. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's the first thing is like most people's, or a lot, because there's, again, many factors that can contribute to that scarcity, to mm-hmm. that restriction. But the first thing is like, make sure that you are fed to the best of your capacity. Mm-hmm. The next thing is to work on... Um, those feelings and just become aware 
because it's like we were again humans with histories it's likely that these feelings might not ever go away we were talking about at the you know before we started recording like yeah. we might always feel these things the next step is to really become sort of an observer to all of the things that you think and that you feel and just become aware of them what runs through my head when i'm about to eat and then the next and again zero judgment just observation and then where did this come from and what belief do i have that's causing me to feel these things mm-hmm. is it you know the fact that like i don't think i'm going to get food later this is only available right now um or right now is like my cheat day and therefore i have to get it all in you know before clean eating or whatever all starts tomorrow so become aware of all of these narratives and this is very difficult you know yeah. because when we are in that scarcity mode it's like heightened response you know mm-hmm. from the body so i think you need to become aware of your narratives and your beliefs and then do the work of actively dismantling them which you know really comes from creating that sense of safety within yourself but also knowing that you can have any food at any time mm-hmm. um and knowing that you can allow yourself to have any food at any time and from that place you can make a choice and you can accept the fact that you know if i eat this much i'm not going to feel great um if i eat certain types of foods i don't feel awesome if i eat these other types of foods i will feel better um so from there making deliberate choices that your budget allows that your culture allows that your time allows um and knowing that you can shift into knowing that i'm allowed to have anything that i want and from that place what do i want now because if you know that something is available for you at all times then um it's not going to be as interesting or alluring anymore mm. um in the cases of poverty and things like that i would ask yourself to within your budget how can you make your food enjoyable and fit for fueling yourself um and knowing that you know you can change things as needed um as time goes on but i think that you need to take care of like the f- actual physical and physiological restriction and then also the mental restriction that happens too and allowing yourself cuz just because you allow it doesn't mean that you're going to eat it you know like i could have yeah. ice cream if i wanted right this moment you know yeah. i allow myself to eat anything but like do i want that do i like do i want how ice cream is going to make me feel right now at 11 in the morning here in California. I mean, the you interesting know? part part to me is that you basically said like the way that I saw everything you just explained in my mind is you think you have control over food and you're using it in, in order to cope with your life. And then think about like the Oprah emoji where she goes, so what's the truth? And then exactly. you realize then that you're actually taking control by giving yourself the option to have it or not. So basically you yes. thought you were in control before, but you're actually in control once you've come to peace with it and just it, accepted exactly. the truth of, I can have this, I can actually do this whenever I want. Cause I'm 100% in complete autonomous control of this. Exactly. And it, and it shifts from 
control to trusting yourself, right? Like you can't have control and trust at the same time, even though, and I really mean like rigid control, even though trusting yourself, again, allowing it and being like, I can have anything that I want. And from that place, now let me make a choice and mm-hmm. and then make a choice that supports my goals. And that feels subsequently more where you are autonomous and in control and really the driver of your life and your choices um, with food. Because if we're dieting or telling ourselves like, okay, this week is going to be sugar-free or something like that. Yeah. And you're going to become obsessed with sugar. And think you're about gonna, it constantly until you you're eat gonna it. think about it constantly. You also have to know that like, we are all rebellious children on the inside. And the moment you're told you can't have something, you're going to want it and you're going to become obsessed with it. See elephant so, in the room. Exactly. So if you tell yourself, you know what, I can eat anything, whenever, then a lot of them, a lot of these foods and the quantities and the way in which we eat mm-hmm. with food, it's really the way in which you eat, you know, food addictions and things like that are more of a, or are a process addiction versus like a substance addiction. So mm-hmm. it's because we got to eat. So it's almost it's like really- a ritual obsession. Exactly. Exactly. And the process that happens through that. So, um, which honestly does make sense actually, because as much as food itself is a substance, like you said earlier, the food isn't just limited to the eating concept. It's the grocery shopping. It's the clothes, the clothes shopping, the fashion it's having to shower and look at your own body. It's having to not be competent versus being confident, feeling Mm -hmm. good about yourself, being able to walk. Like food is literally wrapped up in everything. Plus you see it everywhere. You smell it everywhere. You're always being hearing about it everywhere because everybody talks about food because we're not interesting. All we do is sit at home and eat now and watch Netflix and cry. So, Uh uh you know, shout out from Germany. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Totally. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's everything, you know? So, um, if you tell yourself, like, I can have anything that I want, then it's like, okay, from this now, a lot of these things aren't as interesting anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes, cause a lot of people say like, okay, if you, I, you tell me that I can eat whatever I want, I'm just going to eat like chocolate and cookies all you day. You won't though. You might do that for like oh. two weeks, but exactly. you won't do it long-term because you it feels because, gross. Because it feels gross. So doing something, I always want people to have the full experience, like allow yourself to feel like crap. Like, because then, you know, like, okay, now I have a choice in not wanting to feel this way mm-hmm. because it feels gross. And it's not only like the physical component, it's the shame and like, the guilt. Hello, who amongst us have not absolutely drank us- ourselves into a stupor where for the next three days, we were like, I will never do that again. I will never, exactly. do again. I'll never exactly. do it again. And then you don't do it for a while. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The same thing with so- food. With food things like, yes, discipline is always involved to a certain extent, but like willpower, white knuckling, being tight and constricted, like that isn't going to work. That takes energy. You need to have your full experiences with food. And, and again, make yourself feel like crap if you need to, because then your choices are going to come from a place of you advocating for yourself and wanting yourself to feel good versus these rules, you know, instead of being like, I want to eat sugar because I can't have sugar. And then now I need to restrict it. And I feel so like, tightly wound it's like okay it's 11 in the morning do I actually want a cookie like I don't want to feel the way that that's going to make me feel right now yeah so I'm going to choose not to have it and then I'm not going to 
use any more energy on that decision. And sometimes you will have it, you know, and like, that's going to happen too. And then you have to, then the thing there is like not beating yourself up over the choices that you made and just sort of like taking it, looking at the data. When I eat this, what happens? And when I eat this in this quantity, what happens? And using that deliberation as the driver of your choices, um, which again, creates that autonomy and sustainability, which is really what I'm interested in for with everybody with food. Takes a hell of a lot of learning how to listen to yourself and what you actually want. Exactly. <laughs> which a lot which of is another conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't want to do that. It's easier to have a food list. It's easier to have um, somebody write your meals out a for meal you. Meal plan. And I actually don't write meal plans. Yeah. You know, I really I like that give, you don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't because it's like, I, I, and I even hesitate sometimes to even share what I eat. I will yeah. because like it's helpful. Um, it can be helpful for ideas and things like that, but I work with people to help them create their own relationship with food that, and, and which comes down to like the practical aspect of like, how are we going to prepare this? What am I going to actually eat that they are going to love and enjoy? Because again, social cultural factors and your own preferences create that. So, um, somebody's way of eating will not last unless they like the way that they're eating, unless they feel fed, and unless they feel like they've had some sort of say in that. And that's how somebody can do it for life, right? If they learn the principles and tools and and get to know themselves, Mm. which is, you know, yes, we need to eat protein, we need to eat vegetables, like that's science. Like we need to- The basics always work. Oh, shocking. The basics work, yes. But within that, the flavors that you like, the, the types of veggies that you eat, you know, the times where like eating these other things is like super worth it, mm-hmm. that that's going to be up to you. Um, and that's why it's harder in the beginning, but it's something that allows you, it's like a diet is way easier, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in your own self-trust autonomy and you being the most powerful force in your life, you know, and that comes from giving yourself the responsibility to make those choices. Ooh, self-responsibility in the year 2021. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, I'm indeed. kicking myself for only telling you to schedule 90 minutes because this could be an eight hour podcast. I have so much information to work with, but I want to tell you two stories and mm-hmm. one has to do with substances or foods that are relatively easy to get and always available and taste delicious. And then another kind of substance that also takes delicious, but is not as easy to get if you're not in California or a number of other States in America mm-hmm. or Amsterdam. Okay. Uh-huh. So yesterday I was in my kitchen eating my food and I had bought ice cream because it was really warm. And I had told myself, I'm going to cook this food, eat it. And then afterwards I'll have an ice cream. Well, after I was totally full, I didn't actually want the ice cream. I went to go take it out and was like, well, I said I was going to have ice cream. So I don't want to eat it, blah, blah, blah. And then I didn't even think, like, I just said, I can have it in 10 minutes if I decide I actually want to taste that in exactly. 10 minutes. And I've completely forgot about it. It's still sitting down there. Like it's a Ben and Jerry's, like yes, have not yes. touched it, not cracked. And it's because you allowed yourself to eat it. Yeah. And, and it's still sitting there choice. and I want it after we have this podcast because I've been yes. talking for six hours on Zoom and I deserve fucking half-baked. Yes, yes And I'll do. be half-baked yeah. when I eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Look in that. that conclusion, that transition, let's talk about cannabis because mm-hmm. as somebody who has always struggled with this concept of poverty, there's never enough, I need more because of the poverty input, because of the restrictiveness. 
I spent a lot of years getting really blazed off cannabis and not actually enjoying the concept of in Washington DC, it was legal. And I never really got to enjoy the concept of like, just being high, like just being hazed and listening to music and eating food and enjoying life and laughing. And I'm a relatively funny person. And so when I get high and start laughing, like it is a comedy central session and everybody's on the floor <laughs> dying, but I never got to experience that firsthand because I was always like dazed out on the couch, like literally. Mm-hmm. And in the last months of Corona lockdown, having to <laughs> like literally having voices in my head as I'm recognizing these other voices that swarm and just trying to be non-judgmental these voices that say like, we don't actually like being this high. <laughs> like we don't, exactly. we don't like being this out of control and not being able to do anything. We would much rather just like raise our baseline every time. So we just have a, a slow, steady, you know, if we don't have to be high as fuck, then we don't need to be high as fuck. You know, there's exactly. very rarely a reason that we need to actually be so sedentary that we can't move for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and having to do the same thing with food, like I didn't want that ice cream at that point, and then I forgot about it. It's the same thing with well, I don't actually need any anything. I don't need more cannabis right now. I don't need to roll another joint right now just because I want I like the feeling of it, or I want to smoke, like the ritual of smoking, or for the social aspect even, or social pressures, or even there's more weed in the house, so I need to smoke it through, exactly. or somebody else has weed and they're about to leave, so I need to smoke another joint before it's gone, like. No, I can just like, I can live without it or I can eat something else or I can smoke a cigarette if I'm so damn interested in smoking, but I'm not because tobacco is disgusting, you know, like, yes, yes. As you break down your own psychology and having been an athlete my whole life and always having to have like this mindset about things, it's like, no, you actually take back your control when you say I have control of this. So I don't need to be freaking out right now. Exactly. And another thing to note is that pleasure comes from doesn't come from quantity yes right it's true it comes from the quality of your attention mm. to whatever is happening right so like this is something like you just explained happens with cannabis it happens with food too like I used to be like I can only enjoy this cake if like I eat the whole thing right you know right and now right now it all has to be gone that by the time i go to bed tonight this this cake is gone peace out yes which i've probably eaten i don't know maybe half a cake in a day or something it's like do not do that i mean if you maybe if you need to do it to like realize how shitty that feels (laughs) it feels really shitty if you you don't believe in god you will after that experience yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) you're you're gonna feel really shitty so um i used to think that like for me to have an enjoyable experience, I needed to have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed to have access. Uh, I needed to drink a ton. I needed to have a million appetizers and food and then tons of dessert. And then I would feel like junk at the end of the day, you know, yeah. or like eating ice cream and being like, I need to eat this entire thing in order for me to enjoy it. But you know what you said about yeah. access? And that's the fascinating thing to me is there are things that we don't have access to all the time, like substances. They're not as readily yes. available as foods, but that's mm-hmm. also okay. It's okay to not have it. Like yes. you're not going to die just because like here in Germany, the stores are closed on Sunday, for example. And Saturday mm-hmm. evenings, I usually get panicked. Like, oh my God, I have to go grocery shopping. It's like, girl, you have yes. enough food. You can only eat three exactly. meals a day. Like, exactly. <laughs> like are you going to starve? That, it's 24 hours. Yes. Exactly. And that happened to me, actually, like having those feelings of scarcity come up when Corona first started. Yeah. Because it's like you weren't, you couldn't go to the grocery or like 
it was suggested not to go to the grocery store that often. I'm like, well, 100%. then I need to get everything. <laughs> and like those feelings, those feelings came back. TP gang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> those feelings came back. So I think it's about like, again, awareness. I have the propensity or like the pattern of feeling like I need it all. Yeah. Which I still do. Like that is still a narrative in my brain. But the more you allow yourself the experience and allow yourself to feel the pleasure, you know, mm-hmm. because there's, there can be a lot of shame involved in that too. Like I shouldn't feel this. I don't deserve it. Or, you know, I, I just need to work hard all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I don't deserve a break or whatever it is. So um, I think that the more we pay attention and are present to the experience of pleasure, the more we realize that like excess actually doesn't feel awesome at all. Yeah. You know, like, like you said, like being super stoned doesn't feel awesome. No. Being the right amount feels good, you know? Yeah. And um, the right amount feels great. And especially like with food too, the right amount feels really, really good. Um, You know, so it's not something that, and I think that like the pleasure then shifts from like, I feel pleasure from feeling really good in my body. Yeah. You know, instead of I feel pleasure because I'm not in withdrawal symptoms anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, so like I value that pleasure of like feeling good in my body and my brain, that sustained pleasure versus like the momentary pleasure of food, which I still love, but it's not my number one joy. You know, Mm -hmm. the joy that I feel is like, feeling good and alive in my body every day. Like that feels awesome. And then the other stuff is like the cherry on top. Like this is just like a little fun thing that I do, but it's not everything. Um, so I encourage people to like find that other stuff that brings you joy that isn't harmful to you. doesn't make you feel bad. I just don't want people, like I felt bad for so long and I made myself feel bad for so long and I made things so hard for myself. And I don't want people to feel that way. You know, I want you to know that like you have choice in what you do. And again, you might always have those feelings. Like I literally say that to myself, like I go to, there's this gluten-free bakery that I go to here. And I'm like, I see all the pastries there and my brain's like, Ooh, get five of them. And I'm like, no, like they're not going out of business tomorrow, Ashley. Exactly. (laughs) I'm like, I want them all, you know, but then again, it's about developing an internal caregiver that is going to reason and have a conversation. To me, mindfulness is just about like having a conversation with yourself. Like, does this serve me? Is this good for me? So the point isn't to like make those voices go away. It's just to react to them differently. So like, I will get the one pastry that I really like and I'll eat the whole thing. And then I probably won't have it for a while, but I will like be there with my eyes closed, savoring the entire thing, you know, and then I'm done. You know, Instead of thinking about having to eat the other things while you're eating that one, don't even get to exactly. And when we are in the middle of a binge, whether that's like cannabis or food, again, it's the quality of the attention that makes things pleasurable. You're not paying attention when those things happen. You're you're fixated on the next bite. You know, it's quality of the attention. (laughs) Yes. It's like you're fixated on, you're not there, you know, which is why, which is what we talked about in sport. Like you can only perform when you are there. Exactly. Exactly. So like when you're binging, when people are binge eating, it's like you have the bite in your mouth and then you're fixated. Like, okay, what about the next one? 
you mm-hmm. know, so you're never really there, which is why at the end of binges, you're not really ever satisfied, even with cannabis. If like, even if you smoke a lot, like you're not really satisfied at the end. You're like, I just kind of feel crappy right now, but like, I still yeah. think I need more. And with food, and this is also with, with cannabis and substances, like, you know, something called the law of diminishing returns is mm. present where like the first bite or the first hit here, we call it is amazing. Like, yeah. Yes. It's the best. And then everyone, everyone thereafter is going to be a little bit less pleasurable. you know, but then dopamine kicks in because, um, you know, we, dopamine is a wanting, um, reward drug. Exactly. It's reward. And then opioids are like actual pleasure. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, the quality of the attention makes you realize that like the quantity doesn't matter as much Mm -hmm. and you probably need a lot less than you think you do. I'm obsessed with this. Like yes. you are such a good conversation partner. So here at the end on the Lions, Lions Made podcast, you have the chance to talk to our lion and tell them three things. So the lion represents who our athletes are. Um, what would you tell the lion? What are some ways that he or she could learn the concept of pleasure, whether it's around food, whether it's around substances. Again, I wanted to have this conversation as soon as we could because um, cannabis is now also legal on the water lists. So Mm-hmm. cannabis, marijuana, THC, CBD are in regular use now. And so it's also something that we just can't allow to get out of control, just like alcohol, just like anything else. So what are two to three things that you could leave our lion with practical ways to find pleasure when it's easy to just either ignore it and treat it like fuel or to numb up? Yeah. So the first thing is to like honor the way that you are, you know, so like make sure that you partake in, like allow yourself to feel those things a lot. If you like certain things, allow yourself to have them and, um, honor the fact that like, like, for example, I love eating, you know, and the more you push the things down about you, the more that they're going to come out in unhealthy ways, you know, so honor yourself, honor the things that you like, allow yourself to partake in those things and don't feel shame about it. Like that sounds very, um, easy. (laughs) Like, just don't feel shame. Like we might still feel it, but become aware and work through those things. Um, I also really, the next thing is like, I also really just love the power of action and just doing things and, and trying things. And, um, I'm somebody who's in their head a lot and very anxious. And the more I just like stay moving, and doing things, not to the point that I am uh, disassociating or anything like that, but keeping going and keeping that momentum for yourself, like do the things that you need to do in order to feel good. And then in your off time, like do the other things that bring you pleasure. But for me, like it takes a lot to like be who I want to be. You know what I mean? Like I need to exercise. I need to eat a certain way. I need to sleep, have the courage to continue doing those things that you need to do so that you can allow yourself to do the stuff in in the first part. But it's really about like just honoring your unique psychology, physiology, accepting yourself, and then doing the work that it takes to, uh, to get there. 
Okay, Lion, honor, accept, and do. That sounds like yes. quite the task. Yes. You young cups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, Ashley, thank you so, so much for coming and being my conversation partner. I really appreciate your insights and your openness on both of these topics that are both very important and will continue to stay important and relevant to our generation for a very long time. Um, so could you happy. tell the people where to find you if they have questions or your coaching? I know you said you do business coaching as well as nutrition coaching and food coaching mm -hmm. as well. So could you point the people in that direction, please? Yes. Um, well, this has been so much fun and we probably could have talked for a lot longer. <laughs> Easily. But the easiest way to find me is on Instagram. You can find me at Ashley K. Pardo. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y-K-P-A-R-D-O. I do one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching. I do group nutrition coaching with my framework called intuitive macros, where I basically teach people how to um, track their food or not track their food, um, basically develop a relationship with food and a way of eating that, that works for them and that helps them reach their goals. And then I also do one-on-one -on, -one on group business coaching, but I love to chat. I love to talk in the DMs. So feel free to reach out. Um, if you want to talk, I would love to hear from you. I specifically want to speak to Miss Faye. Oh she my God. This dog with the cutest ears. So yes. if you have no other reason to follow her, please follow her for a very cute dog. Yes. She ears. is doing what she's, what she always does all day, which Being is a nothing. cute bitch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she does. She lays in her spot on the couch and that's all she does. <laughs> well, you might as well monetize it if she's not going to do anything. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She is so cute. She's way cuter in person and she's so small. She weighs 11 pounds. Well, it's hard to beat how cute she is on Instagram. So my, I know. La my last question to you though, is what is the most disappointing thing you've ever cooked? Like, what were you so hyped about oh. to cook? And then you were like, fuck, this is terrible. <laughs> like oh my God. Um, oh my gosh. You're such a good Pro chef that you don't have any let down. Yeah. Stories. I'm like, I don't know if I've <laughs> honestly, I think it was it's, it's always the most complicated things that mm -hmm. are the worst. So this is not probably not like a fun answer, but I, I remember making this pork loin one time that like took like three hours and I, it was just terrible. And then it tasted like a piece of rubber <laughs> afterwards. So um, disappointing. So it wasn't good, but I, yeah. The way that I cook is very simple and very easy. I always love baking too. Um, but at this point, like I have it pretty, it's like a well-oiled machine in terms of- I love of that you bring it back to the end with the basics always work. Yes. Basics, especially with cooking. We didn't even really talk about cooking, but even the way I talk about cooking and nutrition is always the same. Like principles, tools, basics. Don't worry about the minutia and all the other stuff. That said, please go follow Ashley. All those links will be in the description. Please go work with her, ask her questions. She's a brilliant mind and uh, gonna need to have you back because we've got a lot more conversations to have. <laughs> I know, I know, I can't wait.